You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. For those that are visiting with us today, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for the past couple of months, and we come to the end of that study today as we look at the uh, last few verses in Matthew uh, chapter 7. Last week we were looking at um, the difference between false teachers and good teachers, uh, and then also true professors of Christ, and then false professors of Christ, those who cry out, Lord, Lord, think that they're saved, think, think that they're Christians, uh, but in fact are not. And so last week we said that genuine believers remain on the narrow path by identifying the right teachers to listen to and by focusing on the right commands to obey. You'll remember uh, last week we saw in verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we talked about being intentional about who we listen to, right? Like making sure that we understand uh, the teachers that we're submitting ourselves to and what they're saying, making sure that we examine them uh, both doctrinally and behaviorally, right? Like we said, the doctrinal test is so important that we make sure that they are teaching truth to us. Um, does their teaching align with the gospel that salvation is by grace through faith alone? We talked about the, 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 the uh, mathematic system for discerning a false teacher or not, right? We said, do they add to the Bible? Do they add to what God's word has to say? Or do they subtract from the person and work of Jesus Christ? Do they take away from who Christ is? Do they minimize uh, his deity? Do they minimize his humanity? Do they multiply the requirements of salvation and faithful living? Do they add to what it looks like to follow Jesus? Do they become legalistic in what uh, what they say? Do they divide the church with a divisive, destructive spirit? Um, These are ways that we can identify false teachers. Uh, but then we also need to look at their, uh, their lifestyle, their behavior. Uh, are they power hungry? Are they uh, driven to, um, to uh, impurity, right? Like we see not only do they teach well, do they live well? Does their life match up with what they are saying? I challenged you last week that uh, ways to examine a teacher as far as the validity from the practical side of things, uh, humility, purity, and generosity should be things that, that uh, clearly define uh, a teacher who is committed to the gospel. And so we talked about evaluating preachers and authors and making sure that they align with what we see in God's word. And then we talked about this back part here about, Lord, Lord, and I never knew you. Like, how do we process through that? How do, how do we understand that passage? Because I told you, I read that and I think to myself, okay, if you are simply confessing Christ with your mouth, but there's nothing in your life that matches up with that, then you're clearly a, 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 a non-genuine believer, right? But then Jesus goes on to say that those non-genuine believers will actually have some works to kind of throw out there as well. And so then you're like, well how, well, how do I even know if I'm a believer or not? How do I know if my life is being lived out in obedience? And I told you that I think we have to really focus in on those works that are being described there, right? The idea that uh, they're casting out demons, um, prophesying in your name, doing mighty works in your name. I told you that these charismatic credentials that these false professors try to highlight are not a good measuring stick, right? We said that sometimes 
Churches and even pastors want to highlight the gifts of the Spirit as being this, this big marker as to whether you're a believer or not. I told you last week the fruits of the Spirit are far better indicator as to whether you're a genuine believer or not, right? That these, these charismatic uh, credentials aren't really a good measuring stick because they seem to focus more on the unclear commands of Scripture. I told you I'd love to teach you how to cast out a demon. I just don't have a passage of Scripture to go to that teaches you how to do that, right? We know that Jesus has authority over demons, and we know some of his followers cast out demons back when he was on this earth. But we don't see that being this massive gifting or outworking of obedience in the local church after Jesus, right? I still believe that demons can be cast out today if they're present in somebody. I just don't know how to do that, right? Um, but there's a whole lot of other commands in Scripture that I do see, right? And so we said that when Jesus says, you live in obedience to me as an evidence or as a sign that you're a true believer, it's more those clear things in Scripture that we can obviously see. Certainly the things we're seeing in the Sermon on the Mount, right? The idea of forgiving our enemies, praying for our enemies, being salt and light. These things are clear things that we should be responding to in obedience. And so I told you last week, I challenged you, What's the good fruit that you're going to produce this year in 2021? In response to what we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, what are you going to choose to do to live out your obedience faithfully in the ways that Jesus is calling us to? That brings us to the end of chapter 7. So we're going to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount today. In verse 24, it says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Our summary sentence for today. Christians wisely obtain a solid foundation for their faith that will endure both longevity and tragedy by hearing the word in truth and obeying the word with trust. Christians wisely obtain a solid foundation for their faith that will endure both longevity and tragedy by hearing the word in truth and obeying the word with trust. For our kids, the wise man built his house on the rock by obeying the Bible. The foolish man built his house on sand by not obeying the Bible. There's parallel passages that we see in Scripture, particularly in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. We see Jesus communicating this same thing Uh, Through Luke's perspective, it says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I like how Luke points out the, he dug deep to that foundation, right? So if we're thinking in terms of building a foundation on the rock, the spiritual piece of that is we do the things that we hear from God's word, 
right? And so if Jesus is saying in Luke 6 that the wise man digs deep to that foundation to do it, then it's not a casual, surfacey type of obedience, right? Like it's a real intentional effort to take what I've heard and to maximize it in my life. I figure out how to apply it. I figure out how to do it. I figure out how to carry it out, right? You hear it. You don't just hear it, but you strive to do it. I thought it was interesting, and we don't, we don't try to match up what we're doing in D groups uh, with what we do on Sunday mornings, um, but I thought there was such a, a great parallel this month with James chapter 1 because there's a similar idea that James or Jesus' half-brother brings up towards the end of chapter 1. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Right? So James has a similar idea, just uses a different illustration. Right? Jesus says, the guy who hears and doesn't do the word is like a guy who would build a, a house with a foundation on sand that's going to shift over time or going to shift when a natural disaster happens, right? James says it's like a guy who sees problems when he looks in the mirror but then walks away from the mirror and doesn't do anything about what he perceived to be wrong about himself and just forgets about it, right? The idea is the same. The idea being that we're not just hearers of the word but that we're doers, So let's go to Jesus' illustration to really focus our time today. The idea of these builders of houses and the foundations they choose to build their structures upon. Foundational issues on a house are most often discovered uh, as a result of time passing or a lot of times water being introduced, right? Those are two things that will show you whether a foundation for a house is legit or not. Lauren and our family have been looking for a house now for... It's been a little while, year and year and a half. Um, once we had Apollos, we knew the time was ticking on whether we could fit another kid into that house. And we'd love to add to our family if the Lord wills, whether that's through natural birth or through adoption. But right now, we can't really pursue even the adoption piece because we don't have a place to put a bed in our house. I mean, we are maxed out. So we've been looking for a house, and it's been a uh, a difficult process to find something that fits into our budget that is still within local distance to our church and to our community and where we want to be. And um, we came across a house spring, summer, um, I mean, that was like, it was it for me. Like, it was the dream house. Um, it was it was close to church, close to school. Um, it was sitting on 10 acres, uh, which gave us land that we desired. It had a pond in the backyard where you could fish. Our boys could play and catch reptiles, which they love to do. Um, the house looked like a, a, a castle, like, the, like the, architect, the architecture and design of it was really neat. Um, on top of that, the acreage backed up to a power line where you had clear signs of deer coming and going, which was ideal for me to be able to hunt in the backyard. Wouldn't have to go to a lease to do that. I could just hunt in my backyard, right? I mean, it's, it's everything that I want. You go into the house and there's rooms everywhere. I mean, just rooms galore. I don't remember how many bedrooms it was because there were so many rooms. I mean, you get lost in the house, right? On top of that, there's a whole wing of the house, right? Like not many people get to live in a house that has a wing in it. And this had a wing that was like an in-law suite, right? So it had its own um, kitchen area, bonus room, bedroom. I mean, it was just like, this is it. This is what we have to do. This is what we want to buy, right? And so I'm enamored with it. Can't get it out of my mind. 
We go back and visit it again. We start bringing people that we trust with us, right? We end up in the basement, which is unfinished, right? So even more space to add on to what we're trying to buy here. We start looking around in the, at, the, at the basement. I'm still sold on it. We're doing this. And then somebody points out the fact that there's a car jack in the basement holding up the joists of the house, right? And you're just like, well, that's weird. Like, I don't think that's what they intended when they first built the house, right? So we start examining the foundation of the house, and you start to see that there are major issues. I had a hard time figuring out why that house was priced at what it was priced, right? I was just like, why are we getting this? Like, it's 10 acres. It's got a pond. It's got hunting property. Like, it's perfect, and it fits within our budget. And then as we began to look and see, the major foundation issues were why the cost is what it was, because it was going to take a complete revamp of the house to even make it livable. Um, What you could see was over time, the house had settled in such a way, and it looks like the house had been continually added upon as that family had grown. And maybe there wasn't real effort given as to how much the foundation could hold weight-wise because they were building up and out and over, and the house had really expanded. And that foundation just wasn't holding it. And then I began to realize as we walked through the house, there were times where you would dip down, but you didn't go downstairs, right? You're just walking in the living room, and there's like, almost like waves within the floor, right? And we began to tie that into what we could see in the basement. There was foundational issues. In addition to that, I brought a guy from Trinity who, kind of an expert in this area, and he began to identify water issues, um, that the, the basement had been flooded. He could see where mold had been removed, but he could also see where there were cracks in the foundation, right? Some type of flooding had taken place, and the foundation had been messed up, right? And so we backed out of, of our interest in that house because while everything else looked great, right? Exterior-wise, this is what we want, right? All the accessories, exactly what we're looking for. And what seems very minor in regards to, you can't really see the foundation. It doesn't really add anything to my kids' experience of the house, right? It's one of the most important pieces of a house, right? Because if we're going to live there 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road, it was going to need a new foundation, right? Time had shown the foundation wasn't good. And then even tragedy, this flooding had shown the foundation wasn't good, right? For us as Christians, the foundation of our faith too is tested with longevity and tragedy. Will we endure over time in spite of the trials that we encounter? When I was reading through this text um, last weekend, just start preparing my mind for teaching this, I couldn't help but think about um, the book Dug Down Deep by Joshua Harris, Um, because this book is written in response to this parable, right? So Joshua Harris was studying through Scripture, studying this passage, a passage that we're all taught as kids. We sing songs about it as kids, right? So it's very familiar. And he said, you know, I'm tempted to just read over this and and gloss over it. And he said it it really began to, to hit me in ways that I hadn't previously contemplated. And so he writes a book, a theological, doctrinal type book about his belief system based on this parable, now, most of you know I've referenced Joshua Harris as a guy who's abandoned the faith, right? He's walked away from Christianity. Um, he, he left his wife, um, left his church, uh, and, and has basically communicated, I've excommunicated myself because he's a, he's a pastor. He knows the choices and decisions that he makes puts him outside of the church, right? And so there's irony there of him writing so much about how important it is to have a solid foundation, Right? So that when the storms come, when the longevity comes, your foundation holds, right? Your house doesn't fall apart. And yet he's now experiencing what appears to be 
the fruits of foolishness, right? Putting his foundation on sand. Um, I, I told some people that I was going to get rid of all of his books when I finally move and we're going through all of our books. I don't know what I'll end up doing with this one. Um, but I thought it was sad reading one of the first pages, the dedication and the dedications to his children. It says, uh, your father loves you very much. One day when you're older, I hope you'll read this book and realize that I wrote it for you. I have no greater hope for each of you than to see you build your life on Jesus. Man, I just, I can't get past the tragedy of, of writing those words and not a decade later, renouncing all of it. Renouncing all of it. I've reached out to him multiple times, uh, trying to have a conversation with him. Um, I feel like he owes it to me. I bought his books. I've, I've pitched him as a resource. And I've told him, I said, I think you owe me a conversation. I said, I'm not trying to convince you to go back. I'm not trying to argue with you. I said, I just need to, I need to know what it is that has led you to make this decision to walk away. And I, and I, I reminded him of this book. I said, I know you get a lot of thoughts and opinions about your dating books. I said, I want to know about this one. I said, this one was really impactful for me. And I want to know what has caused you to shift in your foundation, right? One that you pitched as a thing that your kids need to be sold on. You've now walked away from it less than a decade later. Joshua Harris is an example of somebody who gives all the appearance of being a solid builder, building a great house, but further examination of that foundation shows whether it was longevity, whether it was tragedy, I don't know what has led him to shift in this. I've told you before, I think people leave the faith for one of three reasons, right? Disappointment with God, disappointment in the church, or disappointment in the Christian life. Most every walk away from the faith can be tied to being disappointed, right? Not with gaining higher knowledge that now convinces that individual that God doesn't exist or Jesus didn't come back from the dead. It's God disappointed me, the church disappointed me, or the Christian life disappointed me. His may be a mixture of that, I don't know. We had the chance yesterday to go to Renee Jones's mom's funeral. Um, Renee Jones has been a member here for several years now. Um, I'd met her mom at least once before. Didn't know much about her, right? Went to the visitation, went to the um, funeral yesterday, and got to hear one of her grandkids talk about her, got to hear her pastor talk about her, and, and learn things that I didn't know about her. Um, one, 30 years ago, her husband was taken from her through cancer, right? God called him to be home. Um, at an age where Renee was pretty young, uh, early 20s, I think, um, so, so her mom loses her spouse um, early, and then within l- less than a year later, a tragic car accident that basically cripples her, right? I'd met her before, saw she had a cane, saw she was in a scooter, just thought, well, she's an older woman, like this is something that's come about within the last few years. This happened 30 years ago in a car wreck that basically took her legs from her, right? And so she's been in a cane and on a scooter ever since then. But to hear these individuals talk about her faith, right? To hear these individuals talk about how she endured tragedy, not just for five years, not just for 10 years, but the longevity of her faith, continuing to trust in God's goodness, continuing to trust in God's word, continuing to put herself in a local church to where she could be used and to serve. Man, it was such a testimony of the gospel that we believe and the power that's behind it, right? She has every reason to walk away from the faith, every reason to be disappointed with God, right? All of us would, would say that she should have probably struggled through some of that, and, and she probably did, but she was clearly one who built her house on a foundation of rock, right? She was a faithful hearer of the word and a doer of the word. And when tragedy came, and even as longevity grew, 
her faith continued to rest on that strong foundation. We've seen in in this uh, chapter 7 two gates, the narrow gate, the wide gate. It deals with how we start our faith journey, right? We have to get, the, we have to get that right. We talked about the two trees, the, the good fruit, the, the good teachers, and the bad fruit, the bad teachers. It's how we grow once we start that faith journey. We have to make sure that we're listening to the right teachers. And then we saw last week and this week, two confessions, two foundations, these how we finish aspects to our faith, right? Are we individuals who are doing what Christ has called us to do? Are we true professors of believing in Christ, or are we simply superficial in our obedience, right? Are we ones who are laying strong foundations, or do we simply show outward conformity? What Jesus is doing here in this passage today is he's summarizing the main point of his Sermon on the Mount. Think back to what we've been talking about all along. Jesus is addressing the righteousness of the Pharisees and what these people are striving to be like, right? They think that the Pharisees have modeled for them what it looks like to follow God, and, and Jesus is saying, look, your righteousness has to be different than that because what they have shown you is what outward conformity looks like. They have, they have taken God's law and they have recreated it in such a way where they feel like they meet the standards, right? But they fall so short of what the expectation really was, right? Whether it was um, they haven't committed murder, but they're okay with harboring anger and bitterness towards others, right? Maybe they haven't committed adultery, right? But they've manipulated the divorce laws so that ultimately they still get the the physical satisfaction they long for. They're just trying to skirt the system, right? Not inward submission, just outward conformity. And Jesus is addressing that. And so what he's saying in this passage is, you've got to get this right. It's not about outward conformity. It's about inward submission that he desires for his followers. And so you've got two builders, two houses, may have looked very similar on the outside, but they're drastically different based on their foundations. The foundation, number one, for the foolish man, outward conformity, personal glory. Remember what we saw in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is addressing the Pharisees? They, they fast, they pray, they give, so that other people will notice it, right? They've structured all of their spiritual disciplines to be known by others, Now, what they find is Jesus says, I never knew you. You were known by a lot of people, just not by me, right? The the, the sand foundation is all about outward conformity. It's all about personal glory. It's all about reducing the expectations for obedience so that you can meet the standards. Foundation number two, the wise foundation, the rock foundation, it's about inward submission. It's about God's glory. It's about complete commitment to what Jesus's words say. The major idea then here is that the true believers are those who hear the word of God and they seek to obey it. So let's look at at a couple points outline-wise. Number one, we need to intentionally seek to hear the word. We need to intentionally seek to hear the word. It starts in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words and does them will be like a wise man. So obviously you read this story and you say, I want to be the wise guy, not the foolish guy right? So how do I become the wise man? Well, it starts with first having to hear the word, right? Everyone then who hears these words and then does them. So you can't do the words until you've heard the words. And so I think first off, we have to be intentional about seeking to hear the word. Number one, we need to place ourselves in position to hear the word regularly. We need to place ourselves in position to hear the word regularly. Before you can hear and obey, you have to come to his word. And I think we can can see this in, in our own life on a daily, weekly basis in, in maybe one of three ways. One, 
That's our personal study time, right? Uh, How are you personally putting yourself before the word so that you can hear Jesus' instructions? Personal study. We need to create time in our schedule to feast on the word personally. Now, we've said before, I'm not going to, as your pastor, try to dictate for you what that's supposed to look like, right? I'm not going to tell you that you need to spend this amount of days and this amount of time in God's word. What I will tell you is that to be a wise man who builds his house on the rock, you have to hear the word of God and do it, right? Therefore, you could assume the more you hear and the more you do, the stronger that foundation becomes, right? So as longevity hits, as tragedy hits, that foundation is secure. You know what Jesus says. You've been doing what Jesus has commanded you to do, right? Personal study time. We had a a guy visit with us for our D group uh, this past Wednesday, and it didn't take long to figure out this guy spends time in the Word on his own, right? He spends time on the Word on his own. He hadn't come and prepared, you know, on James chapter 1 like the rest of us had. He had just come to visit with us, um, and we had several visitors that night. He began to talk about his own personal study time, and, and I, was, I was impressed uh, because he doesn't have to do that, right? He's not in a teaching position where he's going to have to be expected to do this, but to just hear the depth of his personal study time was awesome to, to experience. and was encouraging and convicting to me in my own efforts to put myself before God's word right? Personal study time. We have to create time in our schedule to feast on the word personally. Number two, mutual exhorting. Mutual exhorting. We need to create time in our schedule to encourage each other and to receive encouragement through the word, right? It's not just about coming on Sunday morning and hearing the weekly sermon and saying, I've put myself under God's word. That's a piece of it for sure, but I believe that God's word places expectations on us, and certainly with the resources and opportunities that have been afforded us. Unlike many other Christians over time, we have God's word available to us. We have all 66 books. We have it in a language that we can understand. We don't have to wait for somebody who understands the language to tell us what it says, right? We can be thankful for those who fought and and strived for an English translation for us to read it and to know it and to understand it, right? We've got books and commentaries, all kinds of resources to help us understand God's word, We need to take that and encourage each other with it, right? Hebrews chapter 10 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It looks towards the the return of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, gives us instructions to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen to verse 26. For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's the same idea there going on with with the author of Hebrews and what he's saying. He's saying, look, you can't hear the word and then not do it and expect to escape, right? Right? This, this big judgment is coming down the road and your foundation is going to determine whether your house stands or whether it falls. He tells us to, neg- to not neglect to meet together, to encourage one another, to exhort one another. So I put in my notes here again, we have to create time in our schedule to encourage others with the word and to receive the encouragement that we need. Now, 
What we try to do here at Sovereign Hope is we try to create that for you. We try to give you the option of being able to buy into our schedule, but it doesn't work for everybody's schedule, right? We have C groups where our our, uh, men and women come together, families come together. We talk about God's word. We pray together. We encourage each other. And then we have our D groups where our men and our women split up and we talk through what our own personal study is teaching us in that passage, right? And so, man, I've really, I've really been encouraged over the past couple of months as we've come with more of an intentional plan for how to prepare for it, right? Everybody's got their own section of a chapter to study and to meditate upon and to essentially come and just kind of teach and encourage us with that, right? Um, we need that. I need that even as a pastor, Right? I'm, I'm greatly encouraged sitting in my group and listening to the men in our church uh, affirm what I've studied myself, right? to see their own fruit, their own study. And, and we're learning how to study the Bible together by doing that. Right, We're learning and gleaning from each other. If that doesn't work for your schedule, you've still got to carve that out. You've still got to create that in some way where you're connecting with other believers to receive encouragement, to give encouragement. Right, We can't neglect to do that personal study, mutual exhorting, and then obviously the corporate teaching time where we do gather on a Sunday. We need to prioritize in our schedule the preaching of God's word to our hearts. Look what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Church structure has changed a lot over the years. One thing that has typically remained consistent when it comes to what happens when a church gathers is there is public teaching of the word. I believe that can't ever change. It's got to always be a necessary part of what happens when the church gathers, right? The teaching of God's word, the authoritative teaching of God's word from individuals who have been called to do so, right? And so these are ways that we put ourselves under the word. And then we have to figure out how to do everything else that we want to do in our life right? Our work schedules, our family schedules, our kids' schedules, right? All these things that kind of have to fit around these things. If we're not careful, we become like the foolish man, and we build our calendars first with what our family wants to do, what our kids want to do, what our work wants us to do, right? We build this schedule, and then we try to figure out, how do I put myself under the word in the midst of that, right? So we've got all this other stuff going on in our calendar, and then it's like, okay, I'm not going to be able to do this, can't do this, can't be there for that, won't be able to do that. The wise man says, I've got to be under the word. I've got to hear it if I'm going to do it. And so my priority starts with putting me, my wife, my kids, everybody that's under my charge in a situation where they can hear the word. Right? And then we'll figure out the rest of our calendar after that. Right? We have to be intentional to seek to hear the word. We place ourselves in position to hear it regularly. Number two, we need to be discerning with who we choose to hear the word from. We need to be discerning. This goes back to what we've already seen, the, the good teachers, the bad teachers, the good fruit, the bad fruit. And so let's tie it back to those three areas that I told you, personal study, mutual exhorting, corporate teaching. First, we need to be discerning in our personal study habits with the books that we read, the sermons that we listen to, Right? Don't be guilty of investing time and energy into the wrong word, right? 
You could, you could feasibly put yourself in position to think that you're building a strong foundation and yet you're listening to the wrong people, right? You're listening to the wrong teachers and so you're building a foundation that you think will stand and yet it will fall. Man, be discerning in your personal study habits. If you don't know if somebody's good, reach out to somebody who can help you in that area. Our elders would love to be a, an assistant point for you in regards to your personal study habits, the type of books to read, the sermons to listen to, etc. Be discerning in the people that you gather with, right? I know that we've got plenty of you who, who have sought to create groups and meet with individuals outside of our church setting, and that's awesome, right? To have groups that, that meet together as a part of your, your work connection or your neighborhood connection or your uh, additional friend connections. But man, be discerning in the individuals that you align yourself with to study God's word. That's where the false teachers are gonna come about. Man, it's so easy for the most part, to identify false teachers who stand publicly and proclaim false things. You're going to have everybody and anybody attack those people through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. They're going to be highlighted for you. What's not going to be highlighted for you is the coworker that you've started attending a Bible study with who, who is off in their understanding of the gospel, off in their understanding of theology. But what, it said, what they're saying sounds good and sounds right, and, and it's not being double-checked. Man, be discerning in who you congregate with to study God's word together with, right? We try to protect you guys even here by having elders and deacons and, and just the fact that we come together as our C groups to make sure that what we're even talking about in our groups is filtered through um, good theology and good perspective from God's word. Be discerning in who you gather with to talk about Jesus. Lastly, be discerning in the elders you submit to. Know what they believe before entrusting yourselves to them. And I told you last week, we have a long membership process to protect our church from false teachers coming in, right? The Bible warns us, the false teachers are going to come up from, from within you, right? Not necessarily on Twitter, not necessarily on a podcast, but from within you, right? This week, I'm telling you, our membership process is long because I want you to be able to fully trust us as elders in what we teach, right? And I don't think you can always know that after three weeks, five weeks, six weeks, right? I want you. Now, I can sit here and tell you I'm faithful to God's word. I believe the gospel. I believe in Jesus, right? But that's what a false teacher would probably tell you too, right? So you can't just take my word for it. You've got to see it over time. You've got to see it over time to say, you know what? I can trust this church. I can trust this elder. I can trust this group of teachers, right? Because your soul depends on it, making sure that you're listening to the good fruit from the good tree, be discerning in who you choose to hear the word from. Then number two, trustingly seek to obey the word. First, we have to hear it, and then we have to do it. We can't be guilty of saying, Lord, Lord, and doing charismatic type things that, that look good on the outside with no inward submission. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like that wise man. Built his house on the rock. The rains come, the floods come, the winds blow. Beat on it, but it does not fall. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Notice he's not even addressing the guy who doesn't hear the words. He's addressing the individual who comes and hears and does nothing with it, right? So all of us today are in either one of these categories because you're all hearing the word today. You'll either be the wise person who does something with it or the foolish person who just hears it and leaves, saw some things in the mirror, but we'll walk away and forget it by Tuesday, right? 
hear the word, and then obey the word. Not just outward conformity, but inward submission. That inward submission piece is what keeps you enduring. Keeps you enduring, right? New year, people trying to develop new habits, right? Been, I've been joking with a coworker of mine because um, he wanted to try that intermediate, uh, intermediate fasting deal where you only eat for certain hours of the day. So he, he was going to go from day one. He's like, okay, starting today, I don't eat until six o'clock. And then I get to eat whatever I want from like six to nine. And then I shut it down until six o'clock the next day. Right, we have a guy that's on staff that's doing that. He only eats from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. He eats whatever he wants to from 6 to 9 p.m. And then he shuts it down until 6 p.m. the next day. So one of our coworkers was like, hey, I'm going to do that. The first day he was in our break room eating the snacks that we had brought because it was like snack day at, at, at school and all the teachers brought snacks. He's like, I can't start today. Like, there's snacks in here, right? So I gave him a hard time about how like, he wasn't really bought into that. Then this week, he, uh, he told me, he just kind of casually said, um, I'm not doing desserts this year. I've decided to, to give up all desserts completely. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah. I, I was like, you don't want to start with, I'm not going to eat desserts uh, except at dinner time, or I'm only going to eat these types. And he's like, no desserts whatsoever. I said, what happens like on your birthday? Like when like cake and cupcakes and ice cream are commonplace. He's like, nope, no desserts. I'm waiting to see like when that happens. And like, he kind of breaks through that because these are, these are big lofty goals, but they're hard to keep, right? Because it's, it's, it's kind of an outward conformity. I want those things, but not necessarily an inward buy-in to that process, right? Jesus says, look, I'm not looking for outward conformity. I want inward submission. Number one, we need to see God's commands through the lens of his authority, his reliability, and his goodness. I think this trifecta here is really important as we come to building a foundation that's not going to be attacked by longevity and tragedy. If I can believe that the word that I'm listening to has authority, reliability, and goodness attached to it, right? It's coming from a God who can be counted upon, who can be trusted, who has authority and goodness, then I'm far more likely to continue submitting myself to it. In Isaiah chapter 33, look how God is described in Isaiah 33, 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and he will save us. Man, I love that picture, right? Because you kind of read that at first and you're like, okay, like you got this like judgmental God that sometimes critics want to paint God as, as a killjoy type of a, uh, of a being. He's our judge, he's our lawgiver, he's our king, right? Communicates the authority piece and he'll save us which is the good piece, right? He's a good king. He's a good lawgiver. He's a good judge. That authority piece, I believe God has the right to tell me what to do, right? I submit myself to God because I believe he has the authority as my creator to tell me whatever it is he wants to tell me to do. It leaves me no option but to do what he says. The reliability piece is, is that I believe the word is an accurate account of what God has told me to do, right? Because I can believe that there's a higher being out there who has the right to tell me what to do, but if I have the wrong holy book, if I have the wrong Bible, then I could be doing a bunch of things that don't come from him, right? So there's a reliability piece to scripture that has to be embraced, that I believe these things, not because mom and dad told me to believe them, right? But as I grow and mature, I begin to embrace this because I believe it's reliable in and of itself. Having a conversation with AJ this week about the gospel, 
We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, right? That we confess that Jesus is Lord. We believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. So we're talking about what it means to believe that he was raised from the dead, right? And I'm telling AJ, I don't want you to believe that Jesus came back from the dead because you've heard it from mom and dad only. I said, I want you to believe it because 500 people saw him when he came back from the dead. I want you to believe it because his harshest critics couldn't find a body to show to these new disciples that were running around talking about this. Right? I want you to believe it because people's lives were changed. Right? Because as he gets older, I don't want doubt to seep in. Right? As the longevity piece sets in, I don't want doubt to seep in that, you know what, I think I've only been doing this because mom and dad told me to do this all along. Right? I want him to say, you know what, I believe in the authority of Scripture, I believe in the reliability of Scripture, and I believe in the goodness of Scripture. I believe that God's commands and provisions are for my good. We can trustingly seek to obey the Lord if we believe those things through his word. Authority, reliability, goodness. Number two, we need to create a culture of obeying what we are hearing. The habit that we really have to form in our life is a culture of obeying what we are hearing. We've, for most of us, we've got the, the habit down of coming and hearing. Some of us were raised on a bad habit of that being enough. Right? You're supposed to come to church weekly. You're supposed to listen to the sermon. You're supposed to pay attention, maybe take some notes. And then, and then you're good till next Sunday. Right? But Jesus says that the foundation gets laid not just by hearing it, but by doing something with you, what, what you've heard. And Jesus is calling his, his followers to do that now. In context, he's specifically calling us to respond to the words found in this sermon. The wise will hear and do what he's been talking about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's saying that revelation brings responsibility. The more we hear, the more that is expected of us. Now, what we've said is that the foolish hears the words, but doesn't act on them. They don't do anything with the knowledge that they've gained. They don't change. They don't obey. Hearing the word and not obeying it is disobeying it, right? Hearing the word and not doing something with it is disobeying it. The wise, though, hear the words, they see life from God's perspective, and they take action accordingly, right? So they, the wise person listens to the Sermon on the Mount, hears the things that we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to make our environments better. We're supposed to do it for God's glory, right? Um, we are supposed to remain committed in our marriages, right? We're supposed to pursue purity. We're supposed to be the type of people who, who say things and then do what we say we're going to do, Right? The wise person hears those things, agrees with those things because the authority, the reliability, the goodness of God demands that, that these things are something that I should obey, right? The wise person hears those things, sees it from God's perspective, and takes action. And what I love about what we studied in James chapter 1 in D groups this, this month is that we can pray for wisdom about how to do this, Right? God says, I am a God who is full of wisdom. I have all of it, and I can give it to you generously if you'll ask for it, right? You can pray and ask me for wisdom about how to live this stuff out, and I will give it to you. Jesus says, are you going to be the wise man or the foolish man? What's your response going to be? Are you going to build your life on obedience that's inwardly submitted, or are you simply going to show outward conformity that as time passes, the longevity piece will show your foundation to be faulty. Or when that tragedy comes, that flooding comes, right? Something completely unexpected in your life rocks your world. 
and you're now doubting the goodness of God and whether any of this matters because God's not doing what you wanted him to do, right? Longevity takes longer to see the flaws, but they'll still be shown, right? At some point, that guy just gets tired of following Jesus, disappointed in the returns that he's getting. And we see the foundation was faulty. The other individual, tragedy comes. Flooding shows up, and the foundation is shown to be, at, 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 um, to be wrong. Jesus says, which are you going to be? Which one are you going to be? And then the Sermon on the Mount closes... With verse 28, and when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What we have to be careful of is that we're not just amazed and startled by Jesus' teachings, but that we do something with it. I think what this passage closes with is people are impressed with it, They're impressed with his teaching. It's different than things that they've heard, but there's not necessarily a submission to it. We've all been in a setting where uh, maybe a quiet person at work is in a staff meeting, all of a sudden, like, gets really amped up and really starts to give tons of feedback in a setting, and you're just like, whoa, where's that coming from, right? Like, we're kind of startled or we're impressed by somebody kind of taking control and seizing a situation. But then we kind of don't do anything with that, Right? These people hear this great sermon and they're like, wow. And and, and we've probably all been in a situation like that where we've heard a sermon and we were just like, wow, that was really good. Where are we going to eat, right? And like, we were really impressed with it, but as far as like really doing anything with it, man, it fades really quickly. Fades really quickly. We heard something really good. We We were startled by it, astonished by it, amazed by it. Man, that's one of the best sermons I've ever heard. But no real action plan for doing anything with it, Right? What I'm saying is I think we have to create a culture personally where the expectation is I'm coming to hear the word, whether it's through personal study time, whether it's through mutual exhorting time, D group time, whether it's a Sunday morning time, I'm coming to hear the word, but I'm also coming to do something with it, right? So application for us today. One's a question and one is an action point. Number one, what do you, and I want you to ponder this, not just right now, but after we leave, what do you currently do to ensure you are not guilty of only hearing the word weekly, but are also obeying what you heard? What is your plan for doing something with what you just heard today? Or do you come simply with the expectation, I'm supposed to hear something today? And then maybe that'll, that'll capture my heart at some point during the week. Or do you come intentionally saying, I got to figure out what I'm supposed to do with what I heard today? Do you commit time after you leave today saying, what am I going to do with what I heard? Number two is what I'd like for you to do in response to what you've heard today in anticipation of our application Sunday next week. I want you to read back through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this week. I want you to try to create your own 10 commandments of what you think Jesus is calling us to from the Sermon on the Mount. You can summarize some things so you can whittle it down to the 10, but I want you to come up with 10 things that you see Jesus clearly telling us to do so we can have some discussion about that next week. Read back through the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard it. Step one in figuring out what we're going to do with it is making sure that we understand what we just heard. What are we being called to do? And we'll talk next week about how to do something with what we've heard over the past couple of months. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for your clear instruction today. We thank you for giving us what it means to, to build a foundation for our faith that lies on rock versus sand. God, I pray that we would be wise people today. 
We've shown at least some wisdom by prioritizing coming and hearing your word today, but help us to take it that next step further. Help us to show wisdom by saying we are not content to just hear it. We want to do something with it. Lord, we know that longevity and tragedy are going to test our faith. And God, we want to be prepared for both. So God, help us to be doers of the word this week. Help us to continue to ponder these things with the intent of acting upon them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.